With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the host and guests and do not necessarily represent those of any organization, including one generation away. America is free. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of enterprise, and freedom is special and rare. This is Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides, a production of LibertyNation.com, going after what the politicians really mean and making it all clear for your freedom and your liberty. Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides. From inept governance to woke platitudes, it seems the new model America has something to offer for almost everyone. But what happens when enough just becomes enough? Welcome back to Liberty Nation Radio here on the Radio America Network. I'm your host, Mark Angelides. On today's edition, we talk about the New York state of emergency, the growing trends in woke entertainment, and what's coming out of the United States Supreme Court. I'd like to say a special thank you to our listeners out in Hagerstown, Maryland on WARK 1490 AM and 98.9 FM. Thanks for being part of the team. Remember, this show is proudly sponsored by LibertyNation.com, where you can access podcasts, breaking news, analysis, and a range of biting and brilliant shows to whet your appetite for freedom and your fondness for the great American Constitution. As legendary songwriter and performer Billy Joel might have sung, if he were in the Big Apple today, he is in a New York state of emergency. It seems that Mayor Adams cannot in any way, shape or form, I know you appreciate that pun, Jeff, uh, deal with the merest fraction of migrants being sent north from Texas and has fallen to the mercy of emergency powers. Now, what does this involve and does it do reputational harm to the, the brand of New York City? Well, the person who's been following this very, very closely on LibertyNation.com is author and podcaster Jeff Charles, who's been tracking everything as it happens. Welcome back to the show, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for having me. And you're almost as bad as Andrew with those puns. That'd be Andrew Moran, writer of the Swamponomics column weekly on LibertyNation.com. Uh, a, a good pun is worth its weight. Now, Jeff, why a state of emergency in New York? Surely this is one of the richest cities in the whole world. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Which means that they can take they can take as many of these people as as they need to. There's no reason why border states and border cities should have to shoulder most of the burden. And that's what's been happening up until now. So uh, I think Mayor uh, Eric Adams is trying to make as much political hay of this as he possibly can. And it's very interesting that him and the other mayors, uh, Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, Muriel Bowser in D.C., they're asking the federal government for assistance in dealing with this influx of migrants, but they're not asking the federal government to do what their actual job is and to make sure that this influx isn't happening in the first place. Well, surely that comes down to Kamala Harris, who, as the borders are, is uh, responsible for getting down to the root causes of illegal immigration, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. The root causes in quotations. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly <laughs> what Vice President Kamala Harris is doing, while also trying to gaslight the public into thinking that the border is secure. Yeah, I think everybody was pretty shocked when uh, she and uh, Karine Jean-Pierre pointed out uh, made the point that the, the border is secure. I mean, isn't that just a, a radical redefining in language of what secure means? 
You know, it, it could be, but I think I don't think they're trying to redefine it. I think they actually think they can get the American public to think that our border is secure, despite what they see. Like they, they don't want us to, to 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 trust our lying eyes, so to speak. But really, it's their lying mouths that that's the problem. <laughs> I mean, there's lies happening somewhere. Who who are we to point the fingers? So, um, what kind of migrant numbers are we talking for New York City in particular? So uh, they receive an influx of a little over 17,000 migrants and illegal aliens. Um, they're, they're getting both. Um, a big chunk of that is coming from Texas on the Abbott Express. Governor Abbott is sending them to New York. I believe Arizona, Doug, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey is as well. But they're also coming even from, which is interesting enough, El Paso, Texas, the Democratic mayor, has also been sending migrants to New York City as well. So Eric Adams is even saying, you know, I need El Paso to stop. I'm like, well, okay, but you, you're a sanctuary city. Why, why, why are you so mad about offering sanctuary? Well, you know what? I, I think that's one of the most interesting aspects, Jeff, is that for, for many, many years under Donald Trump, and even before we had uh, cities and states and townships all across the nation, declaring loudly and proudly, we are sanctuary cities. And I mean, really what they were saying is, we're better than you because we welcome everybody. That's what they were saying, right? They were, they were claiming mm -hmm. a, a moral high ground, a moral superiority. Uh, and I think the reason that the media and the politicians are so angry at people like Doug Ducey, Ron DeSantis, um, Greg Abbott, is because they can't say that anymore. They've ripped away this, mm -hmm. this veneer of moral superiority that they had, had carefully crafted and wound around themselves. And that's been torn away now because now they're saying, we can't do it anymore. We've been subjected mm -hmm. to this for a matter of weeks and we're at breaking point. What's the new virtue signal that they're gonna go for, do you think? Now that this one has been uh, cast asunder. You know, I'm not sure that there's one that they can use right now. I mean, they're scrambling to find uh, decent messaging and talking points to push back on this, but they can't come up with a good argument. I mean, before, if you were against illegal immigration and if you wanted a more secure border, then you're a racist and a xenophobe. You don't want these brown people coming into the country. But now, now that they have to actually deal with it, they're basically proving what everybody already knew in the first place, that they don't care about these people as much as they say they do. So they've tried to call it racist to send the migrants to, to to blue cities. They pretended it was human trafficking. They don't have any good talking points on this, Mark, because it, there objectively are none. The idea of tent cities uh, has always seemed to me something that was left behind during the Great Depression, uh, where they had the, the parks full of, the, full of these tents. And we see it occasionally in movies and whatnot, uh, where it was a sad deprivation and people who had nowhere else to go. And so they went to the parks. But that's back in New York now, isn't it? That's modern day New York. Yes, it is. For all intents and purposes, they have tent cities and they, they are no longer a relic of the past. I mean, I'm, in, I'm here in Austin and we had our tent cities too for a while. And um, but yeah, New York is having tent cities because of this issue. And again, you would think that with all of, all of this, all, with them having to actually deal with the problem now, that they would put some pressure on the White House to do something about it. But they're still holding out. It's just I think it's just a matter of time before they get to their breaking point. I think it's interesting. There was a uh, an article in recent article in uh, a very well known prominent Washington newspaper that was detailing what could happen if Donald Trump 
took back the White House in 2024. And it went on to list a whole range, all based on opinions of experts who were only too happy to to give their prognostications. Uh, and these would-be Cassandras, they they discussed a, a range of different things that would happen. And one of the, the, the evils that would come to America with the re-election of Donald Trump is there would be tent cities. And I was reading it and I was thinking, didn't I just read an article about tent cities in New York City today under President Joe Biden? I mean, it, it, it's blindness, isn't it, from the, from the fourth estate? Yeah, you're far more uh, charitable to them than I would be, Mark. I mean, because they, they are not blind. They know what's going on. They're, they're practicing a well-known political maxim that you and, and our, our listener, listeners will know. Always accuse your enemy of that which you are doing. Mm. If you look at any place where there's 10 cities in America, who's governing those cities? In Austin, our, our city council, may, the mayor, far left. If you look in, in California, San Francisco, L.A., Democratic governance, New York City, same thing. So, yeah, I mean, there, there, there are 10 cities, but if Trump were to get back into office, no, that he's not going to cause more of them. I'll say that. Well, it might be the steady escalation, but it, it's hardly like to be the impetus for them, seeing as they're already here. Now, how does Mayor Eric Adams, he was talking recently uh, and I felt quite dismissively uh, about places like Kansas, saying that Kansas doesn't have our brand. New York City has a brand. And he, he, he appeared to be adopting that as something that he was personally responsible for, um, the brand of New York City and how wonderful it is. Now, sure, it's, it's chic and it's cool, but it also appears to be in the grips of incompetent governance. And there's nothing cool about ineptitude, is there, Jeff? Or is there? Is it, is it the new call? Ineptitude is the new call. Yeah, maybe he thinks that's cool. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's, he thinks that that's what's hot on the streets right now. But when you have a, a, a gubernatorial candidate have a shooting near his house mm. in, in New York City, and, and he's trying to, to clean that up, to, to possibly get into ops to clean that up, then, yeah, what is New York's brand? I mean, yeah, it's so chic and cool, but for New Yorkers, many of which have fled the state, the brand ain't that cool. No, I mean, uh, it's, it's one thing to be uh, fashionable. It's another thing to be alive and unbeaten. And I will be back with Jeff Charles very shortly talking the wokeness invading the entertainment industry. We'll be right back. For your freedom and your liberty. Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides. And we're back with Jeff Charles in the earlier segment. We were talking about the New York state of disrepair. But now I want to move on to something that affects us all a little bit more, whether we're in New York or not. The entertainment industry has long been enthralled to the woke ideology. But how far does it extend? And has it infected every brand and genre? Jeff, tell me it's not true. Has wokeness infected the world of superheroes? Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, because when it comes to these issues, when it's superheroes, or even if you're watching uh, the, the new Game of Thrones show or Rings of Power, you know, I think what happens is that, yes, the left, the left has injected a lot of wokeness into superhero movies and into Hollywood in general. And I think what's happened is that people who don't like the woke stuff 
are getting hypersensitive to it, myself included. So it's, there, there are instances where they may, may not necessarily be woke, but we think it is because that's what they've been doing this whole time. But I mean, in various TV shows, I mean, people were complaining about She-Hulk because she, you know, gave that 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 speech about uh, how hard it is being a woman and containing your anger. Well, but if you think about that, movies have been saying that since the 80s, 90s TV shows, that's always kind of been a thing. So I personally didn't feel like I was being lectured to. But in, in Winter and in, in uh, Captain America and the Winter Soldier, they, they included some social elements in that, but it wasn't too bad. It, it wasn't, I didn't feel preached at until the final episode when he goes on the speech. So I think what's happening is that they are injecting, injecting it in certain areas, but I don't think that wokeness is pervasive in uh, every single production. Obviously, we've seen a lot of uh, new shows, original concepts, and, and recraftings of old concepts come out, especially on streaming channels. But it seems that there has to be a certain amount of wokeness involved for something to get made. I mean, I, I can't remember the last time I saw... Oh, no, actually, that's not true. I'm, I'm about to disprove my point here. Uh, Top Gun Maverick was uh, unapologetically uh, pro-America, it was uh, pro boys and their toys. Why did that do so well compared to all of these other uh, elements of films and movies that do seem to be a little more concerned with the social justice narrative? Yeah, I'm going to tell you why. Top Gun is a perfect example. So the whole push for wokeness in movies and entertainment is ostensibly designed to create more opportunities for black actors, members of the LGBTQ community, women, more diversity. Well, guess what? Top Gun had diversity. It had black main char uh, characters who were important to the plot. It had a woman and it had white men too, but it didn't center on that, right? They, they included these characters in the movie but they weren't preaching at you about it. They, they made it a part of the story. It didn't eclipse the storyline of the production. And all of these people from different backgrounds were coming together for a shared purpose, which was getting this mission done. That's what people like to see. You see, most Americans, whether conservative or liberal, they don't mind having diversity in films. They don't even mind exploring certain topics, even if they may not agree with a message. But we don't want to be preached at, and we don't want a movie to tell us how horrible we are if we don't agree with them. That's what mm. Top Gun got right. I, I, something notable there, Jeff. You used the word preach twice there. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I, I think you, you probably did that on purpose there, didn't you, Jeff? Because it, it almost does seem like it's a religion uh, to many people. Yeah. Your thoughts? Yeah, it is. Wokeness is a, a religion. And I you often use very religious terms to describe the woke left. Like I talk about the woke Sanhedrin. I talk about the mm -hmm. precepts of woke theology because they do practice this almost like a religion where their ideology and their government is the God. So that that is why they are so fervent in their belief system and why they are so insistent on pushing it. These are, these are evangelicals, woke evangelicals. So they take it very seriously. So they are willing to go overboard with this and they are willing to uh, demonize people who don't agree with it. Um, you know, it's like, it's like that movie bros, you know, that was supposed to be a rom-com for two homosexual men and nobody wanted to see it. But the way they went about it is they, they didn't say, Oh, well, let's make a good movie. No, it's like, if you don't watch this, you're a homophobe. 
I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely absurd. Even, like the Woman King, I just saw that movie, and I, I like the movie. I, I can understand the criticism against it, but there are people even saying if you criticize a movie, you're a racist. That is religious zealotry at its worst. Yeah, I, I actually haven't seen the, the Woman King, although I, I, I have read several of the criticisms of it, be, namely being that the, I believe this is pronounced Dahomey, uh, yeah, spelled with an X, uh, were, were some of the biggest slave traders in the region who uh, continued slave trading uh, and even fought a war against the French so they could continue to slave trade. Uh, and then we've made mm-hmm. them the heroes of a, a new movie. Um, so, but apparently that's okay because, you know, it's got uh, Viola Davis, who apparently is a great actress and uh, the, the movie's a good vehicle for her. I, uh, I've heard nothing but good things about her, even though I've heard some pretty terrible things about the movie itself. Now, Jeff, is this a one-way street that we're looking at for movies? Will they continue to adhere to the, the woke theologies, the woke indoctrinations? Or will people take a note out of the Top Gun Maverick book and think, well, maybe if, uh, if this is successful for the reasons, they could just do diversity in the casting, which, as you say, it's great. It provides opportunity for people who may have been overlooked by the, the Hollywood system or the, the, the filmmaking industry in general, uh, but without pushing particular messaging. Do you think that uh, Top Gun Maverick will act as more of a beacon for that? Or is it all one-way street, more wokeness, all the time, breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Uh, what's funny is that I think both are going to happen. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll take Net- Netflix as an example. Now, they fired a lot of their woke staff. They continued to they continue to air Dave Chappelle, who was politically incorrect, Bill Burr, and but they still have some woke programming. So I think they're pulling away from it. But I don't think that they're going to completely get rid of the woke stuff. But I think they will promote more of the uh, the Top Gun Maverick type of feel. I think that what will happen is that the market will decide people aren't, aren't going to want to see the woke stuff and they're going to want to see more of the, you know, just regular entertainment. So I do think it's going to keep happening, but um, I, I, I don't believe that the wokeness will be as dominant as it is right now. I, and I can already kind of see that starting to decline because again, nobody wants to be preached to on a Friday night when they're sitting down with their families watching a movie. Yeah. You mentioned Netflix there. Uh, a, a great recent story was their, their Jeffrey Dahmer uh, mm-hmm. biopic um, that was in the LGBTQ category uh, and that received some backlash because, you know, we want representation, but not that kind of representation. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that was a very interesting controversy because I watched that series. I was fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily cast members of the LGBTQ community in a negative light. It actually casts them as the victims because that's who his victims yeah. were. And they, and they did a very good job of portraying that even, I mean, even the racial issues that were going on and how, you know, and how that allowed him to get away with a lot of these murders I thought was very well done. So I, I mean, I, I can kind of see where they're coming from on that, but at the same time, this movie wasn't trying to portray members of the LGBTQ community in a negative light. Except, of course, Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, yeah, yeah, him himself. (laughs) (laughs) Who was himself a member of said community. Jeff Charles, thanks ever so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. You're listening to Liberty Nation Radio, heard coast to coast on the Radio America Network from our flagship station in the nation's capital, WWRC in Washington, D.C. Coming up later in the show, we delve deep into the top cases coming out of the Supreme Court and how they impact your liberties. Don't go anywhere.
is free. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of enterprise, and freedom is special and rare. This is Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides, a production of LibertyNation.com, going after what the politicians really mean and making it all clear for your freedom and your liberty. Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides. Well, there are some big cases at the Supreme Court this week and coming up uh, on some surprising topics, I might add. What do we have before us and how will they impact you and your liberty? Well, to figure that out, we are very fortunate to be joined for a special SCOTUS edition by Uprising podcast host, Liberty Nation's legal affairs editor, writer and all things to all people, Mr. Scott D. Casenza, Esquire. Scott, what are you for me today? <laughs> I think I'm the all, I think I'm also the original guest on uh, on talking uh, on talking liberty the uh, the rundown segment. Anyway. Without you, Scott, there is no talking liberty. <laughs> well, I think I that's the reality that, of it. Thank you in any case, and it's a delight to uh, to join you again. So, speaking of legends, much like yourself, <laughs> uh, artist Andy Warhol is having his day in the Supreme Court, or at least his artwork is. What's going on with that? Uh, and the artwork concerns another uh, absolute legend. Uh, Who we can't name because he's formerly known as Prince. Uh, well, I'm not entirely once, sure how to pronounce his present name. Formerly and then once again is how Oh, I and then once again. It. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because I think right you know, before his uh, untimely demise uh, in, I think, 2016, he was also then again referred to as Prince once he had the record contract issues uh, worked out in his favor. So Okay. So what's happening? Why is Andy that's Warhol and it's, Prince yeah. at the Supreme Court? You might think if you if you knew about uh, Prince's history of litigating on copyright stuff that it was his case that was before the Supreme Court. There's a uh, there was a, a kind of famous, at least famous in my mind, uh, Mark uh, case where uh, somebody had uploaded to YouTube. I think it was a video of their toddler dancing to uh, "Let's Go Crazy" or some Prince song, and it was just a quick snippet, a few seconds of the song. And it certainly didn't diminish the commercial value of, you know, Prince's music. But they basically uh, went to the legal, you know, uh, cage match against this family for having this clip. And in any case, so one could be forgiven for thinking this was Prince's case. It's actually a case by a a rock and roll photographer named Lynn Goldsmith, who's famous for photographing Bruce Springsteen, the Stones and some others uh, as they were attaining and then maintaining fame. And she made this photo of Prince. Uh, uh, it was a photo shoot for Newsweek. And uh, when basically later on, News uh, Vanity Fair wanted Warhol, Andy Warhol, the famous pop art icon, perhaps, you know, maybe not the founder of the movement, but a major player, leading light, movement, yeah. one of the deans of the movement who made his fame, by the way, with uh, uh, perhaps most famously, uh, you, painting a tomato soup can, a Campbell's, uh, yeah, the Campbell's, Campbell's tomato soup, soup yeah. can, right? So using the copyrighted image of another, but altering it in a way that it became uh, this fantastic piece of art. And before Andy Warhol did that, nobody else, you know, was making a mint by uh, by, by painting uh, Campbell's soup labels. We, yes. we D- Don Draper did not get his success <laughs> right. uh, by so, doing this. So that's an important factor uh, because of the transformative nature that Andy Warhol was able to, to impose on this label, right. To make it art when he, when he uh, screen printed it. And what he did was he took this image of Prince that Lynn Goldsmith uh, had captured. And for the vanity fair magazine, um, he 
did a bunch of his uh, silk screens with it. He splashed color onto it and changed some aspects of it. Now, if you saw the photograph, uh, you can certainly see uh, where the image he used came from. It's no mystery that he used that image. But the question before the court is what he did with it. Did that then transform that work so substantially that he then owns the rights to it and doesn't have to compensate Ms. Goldsmith for his use of the sort of base image uh, uh, for the work? So if you think about it, if you took a, a photograph of, of, let's just say Prince, for instance, and you cut it up into a million pieces and then made a pastiche of it and then uh, made it into a paper mache guitar, nobody would say that wasn't transformative because it bears absolutely no relationship to the original work, right? But this is a lot closer because it's, uh, it's still an image of the face of Prince, just like was captured by Ms. Goldsmith. But you know, was it sufficiently transformative? That's what the court will have to decide. I'm wondering, why is this case approaching the Supreme Court now? Because uh, Prince has been dead nigh on six years. Uh, Andy Warhol has been gone uh, a while longer, I believe. Uh, And presumably, Miss Goldsmith is is still in the picture, or in a picture. Mark, after Prince died, that's when Lynn Goldsmith uh, discovered that uh, after his death, Vanity Fair again used a Warhol... uh, uh, version of his sort of prints. Yeah, he made 14 or 16 of these uh, of these images with different color uh, combinations and so forth. And she discovered that they had paid uh, the Andy Warhol Foundation over $10,000 for the legal right to, to republish this work. And basically she wanted her cut. She said, hey, I took this photo. You can't sell this image or license it, which is a form of sale, without paying me. And the foundation says, oh, we don't need to pay you because this is a new work of art. This has nothing to do with you. And so uh, they went to court. They got a ruling. The lower courts agreed with the Andy Warhol Foundation. The appellate court agreed with uh, Ms. Goldsmith. And they created a rule that uh, basically said uh, she needed to get paid. Now, there's also a kind of split in the circuits. There are some appellate courts in the country that have already ruled it's sort of appropriate to judge a work of art based on a subjective analysis of its transformative value. Now, that's a lot of word soup that means the judge gets to actually inspect the art and say, well, we think this does really transform what the meaning of the piece was and speaking to the viewer. Uh, in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals ruling, which is what is currently uh, under examination at the Supreme Court, they say, no, 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 you can't uh, the judge is not allowed to be an art critic. If it's a substantially similar work, meaning this is a photograph uh, uh, and it looks like a photograph of a, of, of a human, you know, of Prince looking at the, the, uh, the viewer of the piece, well, then that's not substantively transformative. You have to go more towards the, uh, the paper mache model, if you will. What, what uh, I think many people will be wondering is, why is this aimed at Vanity Fair and the Andy Warhol Foundation in particular, rather than when Andy Warhol first, if he did in fact transform it into a piece of art by itself? Surely that uh, the, the well, legal it, case should have been bought then. No, no, no. The sale wasn't completed until after Prince's death in 2016. That's when the Andy Warhol Foundation sold the legal rights for, for publication to the, uh, the magazine, right? So right. that didn't occur until you could, 
So in other words, until somebody sells something, I could record Bruce Springsteen songs all day long. I got a nice microphone here uh, and, you know, and Sadly, we would gladly play them on Liberty Nation Radio here on the Radio <laughs> so, American. No, that's not true, by the way. There's some management who would uh, have some issue with that, I think. But in any case, uh, the, uh, the, uh, if I weren't selling those songs, I can do that all day long. And Mr. Springsteen has no legal right, you know, no, no legal cause of action against okay. me. But the minute that I take songs that uh, he has the legal right to sell or license, and then I start selling or licensing them, that's when uh, the lawsuits would come. And so it's appropriate. Uh, th this lawsuit was not or would not have been ripe prior to uh, Prince's death. Well, that kind of brings me on to a question that is perhaps not in the legal realm, but much art and music, in fact, music perhaps even more so, uh, is inspired by other artists' creations. And so doesn't this open up a, a whole new can of worms uh, for even well, those yes. attempting to play, to pay homage to uh, oh, artists? Yeah, not just favor? homage, but try to make a buck and make a new song, especially with hip hop, with sampling. Uh, the, the, one of the last major cases in copyright law, Mark, was uh, about uh, the two live crew uh, who had sampled uh, Roy Orbison, I believe. And uh, the court unanimously held that, that it was sufficiently transformative that it uh, that it was allowed under the fair use exception to the Copyright Act. We've seen a flurry of friend of the court briefs in this case. And uh, it's, it's interesting. There's a plenty who are people who expect to make more money if the copyright laws are, are more strictly drawn. So like the Dr. Seuss uh, uh, estate, for instance, you know, they make a mint off of selling Dr. Seuss stuff. And, and if, if you and I are allowed to transform that image and, and make it into something else and sell it, well, they see that as a loss. The documentarian filmmakers, uh, they want to be able to use clips to that sort of how they, you know, how they get by is to use uh, archival and documentary footage. So they want uh, a more liberal drawing of this. Um, okay. But there's there's fortunes that will change, massive fortunes that will change as a result of how how the ruling comes down. And final question on this one, Scott, isn't there a free speech issue at stake here? There is, uh, the, you know, the copyright protections are an imposition on free speech. If one person writes uh, some a, a song lyric and copyrights that song lyric, they can restrict another person's right uh, to say those words in that order. And uh, that's a, a compromise that the founders made in order to, to further, uh, uh, you know, the, the, basically those kind of intellectual property rights. Because if we had none, then we'd be in a worse off position. So there's a tension there, a natural tension mark between free speech and, and then ownership of ideas. Okay, thanks, Scott. And we'll be right back after this short break, talking the other big case at the Supreme Court, pigs in space or California. Don't go anywhere. Bacon. For your freedom and your liberty. Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides. And we're back on a special Talking Liberty segment with Scott D. Casenza. In the first part, we were talking about the Supreme Court, Andy Warhol and Prince, and no new power generation involvement, I might add. But here, there's another case at the Supreme Court, and this one involves pork for California. And Joe Biden, no less. So, uh, Scott, come on, tell me, what is this about? Why am I seeing articles about pork chops, piggies, Joe Biden? Of course, we're going to get some Joe Biden stories now and again. We have to. They can't uh, abdicate their responsibility to report the news entirely. But pork chops and piggies, it's bracing the news. What is going on? 
a Supreme Court case, Mark, uh, called National Pork Producers v. Ross. And what happened is California a few years ago instituted uh, some regulations that said you can't sell uh, pork for sale uh, for consumption in California unless uh, it came from a uh, a cow or a cow a sow that uh, was kept unless it came cer- from a cow. Well, it's it's trans species. Yeah, surely, well, Scott. It's, the, it's actually the pig word for cow. I'm sure. So uh, it, it, it applies. Uh, yes, the poor sign. Thank you. Uh, and what it says is that basically, uh, as it does in many regulatory environments, California is sort of a progressive uh, regulator in this area. So they uh, regulate the size of the pen uh, or living area that the the sow has. And it's more generous than is often uh, the case throughout the rest of the United States. So they're going to cut out uh, pig producers from uh, many other states from selling their goods in California is the practical result of the, the regulation and why uh, the pork producers have sued. Okay. Now, it, it seems to me that Joe Biden, well, uh, Joe Biden's administration is taking an interest in this. Why? Mark, this case uh, came about because California changed their regulations that would then prohibit uh, a lot of pork uh, manufacturers from selling their goods in, uh, in California. They sued California, and uh, that case has now worked its way to the Supreme Court. The federal government was not involved in the case ex- until it got to the Supreme Court. In many uh, cases, perhaps even most, I don't, I don't have a statistical rundown in, uh, of Supreme Court cases where the federal government is not a party to the case, the Supreme Court says to the Solicitor General's office, which is the uh, administration's highest uh, kind of appellate attorneys, right? They're within the Department of Justice, but they're their own thing. Uh, and that requires a Senate confirmation. The uh, Solicitor General, they say to the Solicitor General's office, would you like to weigh in on this? We're deciding an important issue, which has legal ramifications, you know, uh, for lots of folks. And in that uh, capacity, they have weighed in and they've said, that the California law should be stricken down because of it violates something called the dormant commerce clause, which we can get into. But the Biden administration did not initiate the litigation, uh, you know, or sort of like okay. aligned against California. So essentially, the administration is merely an interested party putting in their two cents by invitation yes. of the court. Oh, that makes a lot more sense because it, it yeah. seemed kind of strange that uh, Joe Biden and Gavin Newsom would be going head to head on these right. things. Well, one so, thing that the federal government does very often is protect its own turf. Yes. And what this, uh, so the Commerce Clause basically says that the Congress and the federal government has the right to regulate commerce uh, between the states. And so basically since the founding of the Republic, Mark, uh, states like to discriminate against foreign uh, actors and corporations. And by far, and I mean outside their own state. So yeah. this happens all the time where the, you know, New Jersey says, we don't want your garbage, Pennsylvania. We're going to charge you more than the local garbage people to dump in our dumps. And they say, no, you can't do that. Okay. That's a, uh, that was a real case for instance. Um, so in order to stop that discrimination, there's something called the dormant commerce clause. And what that means is that if Congress hasn't regulated something, that doesn't necessarily mean there's an open door for a state to, like with pork size for ca- uh, uh, pig pen sizes in this case, it, it may mean that the, uh, the regulation is that there is none. And that's how Congress has, quote unquote, spoken to the issue through its use of the dormant commerce clause. And so that's 
uh, what the fight is about here at the court. There's something in what you're saying there, Scott, that makes me think about the Napoleonic Code of Conduct. Uh, and I don't know if you know where I'm going with this. but no, it's, uh, I'm scared, Mark, because there's one state <laughs> in the country that uses Napoleonic Code or remnants thereof, and it's Louisiana. And it's like a foreign language for those of us lawyers who have not trained under the, uh, the Napoleonic Code. So I, I believe, and I may be uh, slightly off base on this, but I believe that uh, anything that is not uh, explicitly outlined within the law is automatically illegal, uh, as opposed to the... Uh, what we term in Britain, I believe, as, as a common law thing, which is that anything that is not prescribed within the law is automatically legal because there's no law against it. How does that play out with the dormant law? I don't know. <laughs> All right. It was a little off topic. Now, Scott, you and I are both uh, men of, of deep faith and conviction in the healing powers of bacon. Uh, and this... Uh this move, this Proposition 12 by uh, California to is essentially regulate the conditions in which uh, pigs are kept if they're to be sold within the state of California. This has huge financial impact on not only farmers across the country, because I believe that California purchases roughly 15% of all pork products uh, that are produced within the nation. Um, but it, I mean, this is, this is a cost that is going to be passed on to the consumer, correct? Well, it will have worldwide implications. If you think about it, Mark, the differentiation between the California marketplace and the rest of the country is very costly to make if you're a producer of anything, right? Mm. California is a huge market. And it's one of the reasons why they see themselves as kind of a leader uh, for regulation because they know they can put their thumb on the scales of regulation. Uh, famously, the... Uh, uh, the, the textbooks used in uh, America's schools were always just whatever California wanted because you, the, the cost to make separate ones that would accommodate California and then the rest of the country just made no sense uh, due to the economy of scale. So, yes, you're right. It is a massive economically impactful uh, uh, ruling uh, that the, the court will issue. I suspect because of that, they will strike down the, uh, the regulation, by the way, um, the yeah, the, it, it the does. The implications it, of uh, holding it uh, seem, but too it, it, even though it does seem likely that the uh, the the pork producers here will win because what's happening is a is an undue burden that will impact obviously markets as you say nationally, domestically, and globally. Um, but that won't stop California trying to be the regulatory powerhouse of the United States, will it? Well, no, that's their, you know, the scorpion's going to sting the frog, Mark. The scorpion will sting the frog. Who will sting the poor pig? And on that note, Scott, thanks ever so much for being here. Cheers, Mark. Thank you. And that's almost all we have time for in this week's edition of Liberty Nation Radio, heard coast to coast across the country on the Radio America Network. I'd like to take a brief couple of moments to offer my thanks to today's guests, both authors and podcasters, Jeff Charles and Scott D. Casenza my appreciation to you for joining us. And of course, extend my thanks to you, the listeners at home, who've taken the time to tune in and join us. You are truly appreciated. I want to leave you with a final thought, something to ponder until we meet again next week. British author and journalist Peter Hitchens, brother of the late Christopher Hitchens, once posed a question that seems more relevant today than ever before. He asked, quote, is there any point in public debate in a society where hardly anyone has been taught how to think? while millions have been taught what to think, end quote. 
wise words indeed, especially for those who have tried to engage in honest, productive debate, only to be met with pointless slogans and illogical appeals to emotion that have little or no bearing on the topic at hand. When people aren't taught to think or examine, they adopt a pure tribal mentality. They engage in mental acrobatics simply to try and hold disassociative thoughts in their minds. For example, uh, kids in cages at the border. No anger when Obama built the cages or physically stored children in them. And then they switch to burning fury when Donald Trump continues the policy in practice. And then another switch flipped when Joe Biden comes into office. All well and good again. No outcry, no rending of clothes nor beards. As Mark Twain once advised, never argue with stupid people. They will drag you down to their level and then beat you with their experience. Thank you for listening. Until next time. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.